Before we turn to our text in Mark, in terms of our continuing study in Mark, there is a, definitely an appropriate text with respect to Christ's words in Romans 13, text that I'm sure we're pretty much familiar with in this congregation. <clears throat> Romans 13, 1 through 7, let us be reminded of that text. Listen carefully to the holy and fallible word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers, we are not a terror for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes, to whom taxes are owed, revenue, to whom revenue is owed, respect, to whom respect is owed, honor, to whom honor is owed. Turn, if you would, please, back to Mark, as we hear about Christ's discussion with the Sadducees. We'll be reading, I'm sorry about the misprint, that was my fault in the um, bulletin. Please look at verse 18 and following up to 27. The Sadducees came to him who say, there is, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I apologize to you. Sometimes, uh, I finished last, last night the sermon for next Sunday. <laughs> so my mind is all over the place. <laughs> so I apologize to you. Okay, so 13 through 17. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, get, I'll get oriented to the right place at the right time. Just <laughs> okay. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, 
but truly teach the way of God? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask your guidance on a very difficult issue for, for many and in the history of the church. There are many questions that the Christian body throughout the ages under various governments continue to ask and seek understanding. We ask, O oh Lord, that even here in terms of not knowing the infinite thoughts of our Savior, that we have an instruction that we can understand and that we can put into practice in our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. What a wonderful day. Uh, this is the day that we get to come to church and have Christ and the pastor tell us that we don't have to pay taxes to the government anymore. <laughs> well, after all, does Jesus really want our money going to such evil and wasteful activities sponsored and supported by the government? This question has been the subject of intense debate in the history of the church as I have prayed for leading into this message. I would even assume this question has crossed the minds of every conscientious believer that is before us this morning here in this congregation. Perhaps foremost on your mind is the issue of taxpayer-funded abortions. Well, as we hear Christ's teaching on taxes, we need to remain within the context of the flow of Mark's narrative before us. In our previous two messages since chapter 11, verse 27, we have been addressing the issue of Christ's authority. We have noted that the Jewish Sanhedrin, which includes the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, want to know by whose authority Jesus is doing the things that he is actually doing. As Christ trapped them into silence with his own question about John's baptism. Is it from heaven or man? He, he provides no answer about what authority he does the things that he is doing. Well, moving on, Jesus presents the parable of the tenants. 
in which Jesus actually tells them that he is the Messiah and that he has the authority of the Messiah because he is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the new eternal heavenly temple which takes the place of the earthly corrupt temple which the Jewish Sanhedrin presently oversees. As we come to our text this morning, the issue of authority continues. This time, it's about the authority of Caesar and paying taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 14. Christ's response is that it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. However, Jesus' answer is given in an unexpected way, causing them who have come before him, as the text points out, to be in marvel, being amazed. Was Jesus' answer what they hoped to hear? Is this the answer also that we, as the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is this the answer we hope to hear from the lips of Jesus? Well, now we face the latest drama as Christ makes his journey to the cross. As we look at verse 13, we notice that the Jewish Sanhedrin moved to the background and they decided to try a different strategy here to trap Jesus. They send two different groups of Jews to Jesus with the hope to, in terms of the continued theme and thesis here in Mark, hoping to destroy him. The first group they selected are some of the Pharisees, those who have the strict adherence to the law of God. And then they also chose, interestingly, the only time that this group appears in Mark's gospel, the Herodians. This is a Jewish sect that, supposed, that supported Roman authority in Palestine. They did not get along with the Pharisees at all, which is interesting that these two come together to go and confront Jesus in this case. But also what you do not want to miss is something a very interesting, how Mark plays on some words. You see there in verse 13, they sent out. They sent out the Sanhedrin sent out the Pharisees and the Herodians. Do you know what the word Paul, Mark uses there in the Greek for sending out? He uses the word for apostles. Very interesting. Very interesting. These are essentially 
the apostles of the Sanhedrin as they are sent. And what Mark wants to bring to your attention, remember, Mark's the only gospel that even speaks of the disciples before their apostles. He labels them apostles. So the reader has this in mind as they go through this gospel. And all of a sudden, he uses the word apostles here. What is he getting at? He's getting at that these guys are false apostles. These are the false apostles of a false religion. And they're coming to Jesus. They're being sent to Jesus. The selection here of the Pharisees and the Herodians makes sense concerning the question, however. Both sides were thinking that in one way or another, Jesus' answer would offer either, would offend either, excuse me, offend either the Pharisees or the Herodians. They surely set it up so they could trap Jesus. If he says yes, without any qualification, explanation, the Pharisees will be angry because they will view Jesus as supporting the Roman exploitation of the people with high taxes, which the Pharisees viewed as a heavy burden upon the common Jewish population. If Jesus, if Jesus says no, without any qualification or explanation, then the Herodians can turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities for supporting tax evasion, a criminal violation against Roman law. What will Jesus say? There's the trap. Unjust exploitation or tax evasion. Well, <laughs> what's interesting, make sure you notice how Mark <laughs> presents this group in verse 14, the dramatic, interesting description of flattery used by the Pharisees and the Herodians as they team up against Jesus. As you look at verse 14, you talk about buttering up. You talk about palling it on towards Jesus. They use the rhetorical device called cordial hypocrisy at this time. What does that mean? This is when you approach a person with wonderful, good-meaning words to capture their attention, when in reality you do not believe a thing you are saying about that person. <laughs> Hence the hypocrisy. Notice they open by addressing him as teacher. <laughs> this case, not rabbi, but just a teacher who teaches students. Then they have the audacity to say that they know he is true in this case, that he's one who expresses the truth. And that he does not care, as you notice in the text, about anyone's opinion. 
in this case, meaning that he is not swayed by the appearances of people, whether one is rich, whether one is poor, whether one is the Jewish Sanhedrin, or one is a common Jew. Now comes the icing on the cake, <laughs> going totally overboard. Another play on words. <laughs> Notice this, what they say at this point. Jesus truly teaches the way of God. How much, how many messages here in Mark have we seen how important the word way is in terms of Jesus' path to Jerusalem? and terms of more, more specifically, the path of the believer to salvation. It's known as the way. Mark's playing on words again here as he himself records what they're saying. They think they have the way to salvation. No, their way is that to destruction. <laughs> but they're piling it on Jesus like they respect his teaching. <laughs> In their hearts, they don't believe a thing that Jesus is saying. They possess lying and deceitful lips. Like the serpent approaching Eve in the garden, their tongues are set on fire by hell because their hearts are full of deadly poison and their tongues sprout deadly poison. With their tongues, they praise Jesus, but in their hearts, they curse Jesus. If you don't understand what I'm getting at here, I am just basically applying James. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, to the way they are speaking to Jesus. Let me ask you, as you're looking at verse 14, where is your heart as you listen to their words? Remember, we, you cannot deceive Jesus who knows the heart of every human being, who knows the hearts of these deceiving Pharisees and Herodians who have come before him. He knows they are hypocrites and they present their question to him. Jesus makes it clear that he, that he does understand that they are hypocrites when he says in verse 15, why put me to the test? He knows what they're doing. He knows their plot to trap him, to trap him with their question about taxes. So Jesus now swings into action. He demands them to bring him a small silver Roman coin, a denarius, which is the only coin accepted in Judah for payment of Roman taxes. Jesus tells them that he will, notice, look at it. 
Yes, Jesus, who definitely has eyes to see, will look at the coin. These are not a simple set of eyes looking at the coin. These are the eyes of the Son of God. Now notice, it's interesting. Don't have time to go into all of the implications of this. I'm just going to mention it, that it's interesting that Jesus is not in possession of a denarius in the text. He has to have them bring one. So the Pharisees and the Herodians brought one to him. What is crucial about the denarius is not only the fact that it is the coin required in paying taxes, but even more crucial, as you see as the text proceeds, even more crucial is the inscription that is on the coin. In the United States, we have the inscription in God we trust on some of our coins. But on the denarius, it is an inscription. Here it is. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Then you turn the coin over. Okay. And the coin has the inscription, high priest, high priest. For the strict Jew, both sides of the coin were extremely offensive. On the one side, the breaking of the second commandment of the divine graven image. And on the reverse side, the blasphemous declaration that Tiberius was, has the position of high priest for the people under his rule. The Pharisees resented this coin. It was offensive both politically and religiously to them. And yet they found ways to justify their own payment for taxes, for their taxes. One reason that the Pharisees could justify paying taxes reluctantly to Caesar was a recent violent ending of a man named Judas of Galilee. And his revolt against paying taxes to Caesar as recently as 6 AD. His revolt was a synthesis, bringing together religion and the political, in which he called out to his fellow Jews, and I quote, for being cowards willing to pay tribute taxes to the Romans and putting up with mortal masters in place of God. After all, Judas of Galilee said, God is our leader and our master. Simply Judas of Galilee proclaimed the Jewish state as a republic, recognizing God alone as king and ruler and his laws as supreme. Well, his revolt was immediately suppressed by the Romans. The Pharisees in our text would have known of this event 
and they may think it is best to pay their taxes even so reluctantly rather than face imprisonment or extermination for violating Roman law. Congregation, you need to understand what is happening and what Christ is about to teach here in our text. Christ has no interest in revolt that brings true religion and the political sphere together. I hope you heard that. Such Jewish zealots and patriots are not Christ's interest at all. He did not identify his teaching about salvation and his kingdom with such political, social, and religious ends. Oddly, I have personally heard and discussed basically the same position advocated by Judas of Galilee among those in the Reformed world who are theonomous. That is, those who wish to institute Old Testament moral and civil laws into the American government and culture. Right now, there is a heavy discussion going on. I understand, very, very pervasive, that sort of also rhymes into this called Christian nationalism. Such a position was never taught by our Savior. Never. You can't find it in the Gospels at all, and especially not this text. Even so, in their hypocrisy, the Pharisees thought if Jesus answered their question about whether it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar with an unqualified yes, they would have Jesus admitting that Caesar has a higher authority than God. Such a response would place Jesus' popularity in jeopardy among the Jewish population, which the Pharisees would like to see. In contrast, if Jesus answered the question with an unqualified no, with the Herodians present, then, as we said earlier, Jesus would be guilty of supporting tax evasion and subject to imprisonment. So what will Jesus say about the use of the coin concerning paying taxes to Caesar? Well, he takes the coin and he asks them, whose inscription is on the coin? They respond, verse 16, Caesar's. Now comes Jesus' un, unexpected answer. The Pharisees and the Herodians think they've got him trapped with just a yes or no answer. But Jesus says, render to Caesar or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render and give to God 
the things that are God. Verse 17. They are so caught off guard with Jesus' answer that they marvel. The Greek here is marvel at a high degree of amazement. <laughs> Where did this answer come from? What are we supposed to do with this response that Jesus just gave? If you think about it, Jesus' answer even makes some sense although the Pharisees and the Herodians have no clue as to what to do with it. They're just amazed. Their test that they were hoping for, that trap that they wished to happen, has failed. Has failed. But, what is Jesus Christ's answer revealing? To the disciples, the future apostles that are right there listening to this discussion. Which means, what does Christ's answer reveal to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? To all of us that are here this morning. To us who are followers of Christ. The king and the authority who is above every authority in heaven and on earth. Think of the context. Remember what I said at the beginning. Stay within the context and the flow of Christ's discussion. Most people understand, I agree with this, that all of this is happening in one day. So notice what Jesus just said in the parable of the, talent, of the, of the tenants. That God is coming to destroy the tenants. That is the Jewish Sanhedrin. The apostasy, the apostasy and barrenness of Israel. And he's going to give the vineyards to others, the Gentile nations. Look there, 12, 9, chapter 12, verse 9. Stay in the context, the flow of Christ's person and thoughts that day. Well, as the Holy Spirit Grasp this. As the Holy Spirit creates the body of Christ in the Gentile world. We're all an example of this. In the Gentile world, the Spirit brings his people from every tribe and nation to be seated before the throne of of the Lord Jesus Christ. The expansion of the good news into all the world will obviously, obviously occur under, under many multiple governments in which Christians and the church will be subject to paying taxes to those governments. Hence, that's why we read from 
Romans 13. Hence, we find Paul applying Christ's response to the Pharisees and the Herodians to the very practical life, our practical life in the church. Every government that will exist on the face of the earth until Christ returns is in place by the sovereign authority of God, whether they are good or bad. Otherwise, you're not very good as a Calvinist. You're not very good in believing in the sovereignty of God if you think even bad governments are not placed there in the providence of God. Paul <laughs> knew that so well. Roman, the Roman, that's a terrible government. They're corrupt to the core. And he's writing this to the church. Paul even picks up on the theme of paying taxes specifically, if you noticed in our reading in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. He gives no leeway. Christians pay their taxes in respect and honor to whom they are owed because, why? Why? Because God's providence has placed that government in place. Even corrupt governments like Rome. Now at this point, let our hearts be open to receive even further instruction from Paul as he writes to the Philippian church. Where is the church's citizenship? Where is the believer's present citizenship and identity? It is so hard, it is so hard for Christians to comprehend this and get this into their soul and into their heart. I don't understand it. Maybe we were too ingrained in terms of the American political system. Where does Paul tell you if you're a believer in Christ, where does he tell you your citizenship is right now? Where is your identity? He tells the Philippian church, they're under the authority of the Roman government. He tells them, he tries to make sure they understand your citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. Is in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven before and essentially before you are a citizen of any nation on earth. Christ is presently in Jerusalem. He has made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and is presently in its temple, both 
are under the judgment of God and Jesus as the Son of Man. Through his death and resurrection, his ascending pilgrimage into the heavenly Jerusalem as the chief cornerstone of the heavenly temple, Christ has transformed his church. And every single believer that is here by the Holy Spirit into being citizens of heaven. Isn't that great? <laughs> Be excited <laughs> about it. You're a citizen of heaven. If you are a believer, a true believer in Christ. As the true believer lives in this world, their identity, their national citizenship. Notice what I said. I said that on purpose. Their national citizenship is the kingdom of God in heaven. According to Paul, he's got to write, he keeps writing this to every church. Okay, he's writing it. Not only the Philippians, we can read about it in the Colossians, but also I'm now telling you once again, as we have said once often in this pulpit, he's going to tell the Ephesian church the same thing. Believers in the Ephesian church, in the good news of the gospel, have by repentance and faith a present life of faith union with Christ where it's strong. He repeats it three times to the Ephesian church. Maybe you didn't get it the first time when I said it at the beginning of the epistle. Maybe you'll get it the second time. Well, if you didn't get it the second time, maybe you'll get it the third time when I talk about you, about your individual salvation in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 1, 3, 20. In chapter 2, verse 6. Please grasp this. Because you are already, you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've come to Christ in true repentance and faith, because you are already in the final eschaton, the age of the kingdom of God in heaven has already begun for the church and for you. There is absolutely no problem as you continue our earthly pilgrimage to pay taxes to the authority that God has appointed on earth in each nation as God sustains his decree leading to his son's return. No problem. Your citizenship is in heaven. They can have their taxes. All these nations and their governments are under his, God's, divine judgment and accountability, which will become dust at the end. And the earthly coins collected for taxes will ultimately be dust as well. 
if your faith embraces the present eschatological final reign of Christ ruling over the entire creation, then his command to give to Caesar what is his and God what is his will not be troubling to you at all. It's Christ's command. He knows what's inscription is on there. He knows that if you worship Augustus, that is a graven image. Your taxes are not a worship of the United States. Not at all. So after all, do you confess this morning with your lips and believe in your heart the word of Paul? Let's go to the Colossian church. Colossians 1.16 for by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Okay, you ready? Do you, do you really believe the next words? Whether thrones or authorities or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. Every nation is accountable to God. The church and every believer is accountable to God. Give your heart and soul to the contentment that our triune God is in control over every single government on the face of the earth. For us, let us abide in Christ, our temple cornerstone in heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and for what he has done for us. His words, his words are always true. We may not understand the implications of that as we journey here on earth in many ways. We still may have many questions, but let us bow before the one who is in authority and that we trust him and that he is the one in whom has been resurrected so that we ourselves can be placed in the heavenly places. That our citizenship is from above. It is in Christ and in his presence forever. They may bring out the sword, but they cannot kill 
the soul, the soul. Help that to be the theme of thy church and thy people. In Christ's name, amen.